Hello and welcome to the Wish You Knew podcast. I'm your host, Karen Bortvet. I'm very happy to have you tuning in today. It has been one year since the last presidential election. The idea for this podcast actually came about one year ago on that day. I remember being scared for many reasons, but the one that stood out was the fear that the divides in our country would only deepen. We would become more afraid of the other. I've spent my adult life trying to come to know the other, and so the thought of my friends and loved ones being at odds and isolated broke my heart. Change is scary. Things we don't understand are scary. As you know, I'm the kind of person that finds almost everything scary. But I also deeply believe that we all do share a common ground. It just sometimes takes some deep and open listening to find that space. Fear tends to shut off our ability to listen. It's a terribly self-perpetuating cycle, since if we listen and get to know that which we fear, we may realize, as FDR once said, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Today, as we have an episode about politics, and at all times in our life when we talk about politics, I think it's important for each of us to take the time to do some self-reflection as to where we stand, and more importantly, why. Because until we understand ourselves and our motivations, how can we ever hope to understand another person's? With all that in mind, I hope you will come to this episode with an open mind to listen and a willingness to try to understand. If you get angry, get angry, but take the time to ask yourself why. This is one person who identifies as a liberal-ish and her perspectives on what that means. I would challenge each of us listening to take notes of the different points she addresses and ask ourselves, what is my stance on this? Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for an opportunity for you to share. I also want to give a huge thanks to Lila for her willingness to engage. It was a real challenge to find someone who is just your average voter that was willing to actually speak openly because with all the trolling in our world today, many have been scared into silence. And that is what the show is all about. Just your average person, not a policy wonk, but someone that could be sitting next to you in the local diner. So I hope you enjoy the opportunity to listen to one of your fellow humans share. Uh, We are very excited to have the next couple of weeks focused on different political opinions since it's election season. And that's a hot button area where people tend to just yell at one another. So the hope is to actually be able to listen to people's perspectives. Can you tell us a little bit about your political perspectives? Yeah, well, the problem with me and being a Democrat is that there are pieces of the Democratic Party that I do not agree with and pieces of the Republican Party that I do. And so I, I don't always vote Democratic. So I'm, you know, I'm not, I would say I'm liberal, though, so. What is it that bothers you most about Republicans? I think I think the thing that bothers me most about Republicans in general is that, you know, like take the Black Lives Matter movement. I don't understand the Republican stance on color. I don't like their Bible banging. You know, I mean, I'm a lifelong, what do you call it, credo Catholic, but Bible bangers turn my stomach. And so many Republican people in office seem to be like that. You know, like when I listen to Ted Cruz talk, I just want to throw up. I mean, I just, it just really turns me off because it's like, do your job, put your Bible down and do your job. 
you know, live what you believe and stop throwing it in everybody's face. I, does that make any sense? You are speaking to us as a liberal voter. What are key issues that you feel like make you consider yourself a liberal voter? I think the, the one that's really close to my heart is Black Lives Matter, civil rights, equal rights, women's rights. And I do draw the line at abortion because I am a pro-lifer, not a pro-choicer. But I grew up in a time when, you know, women were just beginning to get their feet on the ground, get out of the kitchen and get into the workplace. And I, of course, have had a career. So I'm really interested. That's why I really wanted Hillary for president. I really wanted a woman president. As far as key issues go, I think, I think race rights and women's rights, equal opportunity to people who, you know, just need a, a leg up. And that's what, you know, where the, the conservatives are more the opposite end. They, they want everybody to kind of fend for themselves, but I'm more inclined to be in favor of social programs. Does that make sense? Did that come from being raised that way by your family or other life experiences? I would say that um, <laughs> my parents are were Democrats. Mike is a Democrat. His parents were Democrats. And then, of course, I've landed here in, well, first Washington, then Oregon, and, you know, they're both liberal states. Then you also figure I'm a retired teacher. Teachers are, generally speaking, fairly liberal. We have to be because of all the diverse populations that we work with and the different socioeconomic groups that we work with. And so we tend to be a whole lot more open-minded. So I would say that it's probably more, I would say more throughout my adulthood. And I haven't always, like I told you before, I haven't always voted Democratic. I usually vote for who I consider the most level-headed person that's running for office. And that's not necessarily always a Democrat, depending on who's running. But as far as my life experience goes, I think that I just really tend toward being a liberal. And does religion factor in it all? For a lot of people, that's a motivating political factor as well. You know, I kind of wish religion would be taken out of it. Religion is, for me, the frustrating part of being a Democrat is abortion issue. I mean, I know the stem cell research thing is, is another thing that Democrats are really in favor of. But I've had conversations with my research scientist niece who uses stem cells in her research, and she's a very devout Christian. So I don't think that's as big of an issue. But abortion always seems to be a huge religiously oriented line that gets drawn between the parties. And I feel like on that issue, I'm, I'm standing on the wrong side. And so, yeah, I would say religion causes some problems here. <laughs> How should I phrase this? For some people, there's certain issues that that's the one issue they always vote a certain way on. How do you yeah. feel like you balance out your issues when some fall on one side and some fall on the other? Well, uh, yeah, okay. Well, one of my sons I've kind of gone round and round with, and he's pretty much told me that you really shouldn't be voting Democratic if you're pro-life. And so this past election round in 2016, 
I looked very carefully at Republican presidential candidates. I was devastated that of all the fantastic candidates there were, the guy from Ohio was one of my favorites, um, ASIC, and Marco Rubio, because they're intelligent, they're common sense people, they're down to earth, they're able to organize their thoughts and communicate well. And who did we end up with? Anyway, so I really did consider voting Republican because that way I could honestly say to that son, yes, I voted Republican. I voted for pro-life. But when it came right down to it, I could not vote for Donald Trump. And so the way that I balance that all out is the bottom line is, is that Roe versus Wade went into effect, what, in 1970? It was a long time ago. There isn't much that anybody's going to be able to do to reverse that at this point in time. I think that as far as abortion rights versus pro-life go, one of the things I absolutely hate is, is what's going on in Oregon with late-term abortions. That makes me, it just makes me sick. So I think that, that, you know, to be totally honest, I think that I tend to lie to myself about it. I tend to avoid the issue inside my head, justify voting Democratic when I feel so strongly pro-life. So I would say that that, that for me is the biggest issue in um, between being a Democrat and believing the way the Republicans believe. So I don't think there's anything that I or you or anybody can do that's going to change the ability for women to get an abortion. However, I do think that some of this really extreme abortion stuff, I mean, there's a part of me all along that just hasn't believed it, that hasn't believed that anybody in their right mind would ever abort a term baby or a baby near term, because they can keep babies alive now from 25 weeks on, isn't it? I think it's 25 weeks. And, you know, after having all these babies of my own and seven grandbabies now, it's I can't comprehend there's I can't comprehend that people would ever choose to end a life because every life is such a potential. Uh, this is turning into more of an, an abortion discussion than Democrat discussion. So sorry about that. That's fine. It's whatever your beliefs are. Other than abortion, are there other challenges that you have with the Democratic Party or the Democratic platform? What about uh, euthanasia? That's the one that always accompanies abortion. You know, did you know that liberals think that euthanasia should be legalized? And that's another Oregon thing. I mean, look at that. What's that doctor that was, you know, that helped get get the law passed that you can end your own life? That's an Oregon issue. I mean, that's where we've First, we're given the right to say, I don't want to live anymore and legally die. And um, I don't know where that all stands now, but that would be one liberal or democratic type viewpoint that I don't agree with. Anyway, let's see what else. No, I think I'm pretty much, unless you, you know, I know the same-sex marriage thing is a liberal, is a liberal viewpoint or Democrats are in favor of it. And I have to admit I'm not opposed to it, which is weird because being Catholic, you'd think I would be, but I'm not. And most Catholics I know aren't opposed to it either, unless they're lying to me, which is possible. (laughs) You have to remember, I'm living in Oregon. 
And Oregonians are fairly liberal no matter what church they go to. Although I do have a couple of friends and relatives who are Republican, pro-Trump, very conservative, very Christian. Sometimes I get so enraged that I have to just take whatever it is they put on my Facebook or, you know, a posting that comes up and I just have to not delete the post, but you know how you can hide it because I just, I don't want to get into any big arguments with anybody, especially on Facebook about it. And, you know, I could tend to do that fairly easily. Are there, other than the pro-life issues, are there things about the Republican Party that you appreciate? Maybe not particular candidates in the party, but the platform in general? I think that when I vote Republican, it's usually on a person-by-person basis. As far as, you know, I do I do like that they support the military, they're pro they're pro military i would say more so than the democrats but generally speaking i feel like the republican party is they do a lot more for rich people than middle class people like even you know when they supposedly don't believe in adding taxes or whatever they believe in lowering taxes but the way they go about doing it that trickle down economics where they make all the cuts with the big money and the big corporations, that's supposed to trickle down to some kind of gift to us here at the bottom of the food chain. And I just don't think it it ever happens. I I believe that when Republicans are in power, the rich are the ones that benefit. It would be a candidate-by-candidate choice to vote Republican, not on so much on the overall Republican platform, but on an individual candidate's interpretation of that platform and the way that they would put those beliefs into effect. You've mentioned a couple times looking at individual candidates and their approach to things. Do you feel that people these days do that, or do you feel like people tend to stick more to their platform and say, I'm one way or the other? Well, they, it, we sure seem divided. Kind of, I mean, everything is so polarized right now that I would tend to think that they stick more to their platforms because I think at least with who we have in the presidency now versus who, if we had elected Hillary Clinton instead, I think either way they would have stuck really close to their platform. You know, I don't know. Donald Trump is such a freaking wild card. I don't even know for sure that I'm that that's even true. He just, you know, you don't know from one minute to the next what's going to pop out of his mouth or what he's going to what he's going to do. But other people holding Republican positions seem to be sticking pretty close to their party line. And before the interview, we're talking. How many years have you been a re- voting adult? Would you be willing to share? I voted when I was 18, 18 or 19, whatever the, um, I was young. It was when the laws had first changed. So I have voted in every single presidential election since then. So what's that? 64 take away 18, 46 years. And have you seen changes occur in the political climate in that time? Or would you be able to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, when I think about all of the political changes over time and the wars that we've been in and out of and the economics that have been gone high, low, in between, it's a little bit mind-boggling. But I guess that's what happens when you're 64 and you look back. Mostly, mostly been related to war and economics. 
you know, when I, when I think back about we wanted an end to Vietnam so badly, the arguments and difficulties I went through with my dad, who was a World War II veteran, when I told him, you know, the Vietnam War is an undeclared war, and by then almost 60,000 of our soldiers had been killed, and in a place where nobody really understood why are we doing this, it was just such a weird, it went on for so long, and it was such a bizarre war, and, and so I made the statement inside my parents' house, I'm trying to remember, I was probably in early high school at the time, or no, by the time I was talking like that. It was end of high school, early college, because it was in early high school when my brother-in-law went to Vietnam, and that was in 68. But anyway, I just made this big statement, and my dad just shot me down, and we got into a big tangled argument about it, so I couldn't really defend my actions or anything. I just remember that that was something that I felt pretty passionately about the Vietnam War coming to an end and please end it, get us out of there now. But I I was still living at home and at the time I wasn't able to feel the way that I felt because my dad felt very strongly the opposite. So, but you know, when I think back over some of those kinds of things that we've gone through and then the, you know, when the first Bush was president, I can't remember if I voted for him or not, but you know, watching the Persian Gulf War on television, I I was cooking in the kitchen, kids were doing homework at the counter, and I had a little TV in the kitchen, and I was watching jets bombing. I know there was the economic downturn was really scary, that, that big recession that we had. First of all, we went through, when we were first married, we had to hurry up and buy a house before we were ready, because the interest rate was already at 9%, and it was going higher. And if we'd waited, we would have had to pay like above 12% interest. Uh, Mike's college roommate's dad was the Washington County assessor. And he told us, just get some money together from your relatives, get a loan, do something from your relatives and buy a house. So we did. That's how we bought our first house. And then my sister and brother-in-law went on the GI Bill, got a house for 18% interest, lost their home and went bankrupt. And that's how we treated that soldier. And I'm sure a lot of other ones but then then we had that big economic downturn where, you know, there were so many people out of work. And that's when the interest rates came down, 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 down. So when you stop and think about how much of the, of the economy we've been riding almost like this surfing wave, it's really crazy. There have been some really crazies that I'm when Nixon was in office and the big Watergate scandal happened. And I think that that was the first time that I realized that politicians weren't honest. (laughs) I mean, up until that point, I was so naive, but I didn't have the fear of him that I have the fear have like I feel about our president today. I think, I think the president that we have today of all the presidents we've had, You know, I voted for George Bush, but he ended up kind of scaring me a little bit. But Donald Trump scares me more than anybody that's ever been in office. I think that he is a loose cannon. So Barack Obama was probably my favorite in that, you know, I don't disagree with people that 
things went this way or that during his presidency. But what I really appreciated about him was his, he was more all inclusive of people, of American citizens. And when he spoke to the public, he spoke very carefully and chose each word very carefully. Of all the presidents I voted for, he has done that the best. I remember when Bush was president, you know, I'm a teacher, so (laughs) we're always picking on how people speak, read, write, you know, that kind of thing. I'm I'm always, you know, going about it as the diagnostic prescriptive approach instead of just relaxing and listening to what they have to say. But I remember thinking that Bush couldn't string five words in a sentence, but he improved over time. Then Barack Obama did did it so well. And now we have Donald Trump. So between economy and war and some crazy president and all the rest of it's kind of a big blur. You've mentioned a couple of personal experiences that sort of impacted your perspectives. Do you feel your voting decisions and your political motivations are based on the effects that things are going to have on your immediate family or is it on a larger pool of people? No, I think it's mostly on my immediate family. Generally speaking, this is where I lean more toward being a liberal Democrat is that I want, I want social programs that help people in need. And I think that, I think that Democrats are better at putting those programs into place than Republicans are. So that would be where I look, get a more countrywide look at things. You know, socially, I'm looking at things. Although, you know, maybe I should have been in favor of Bernie Sanders because wasn't he the one that wanted a, that was talking about the incredible student debt that everybody has and we've got to find a way to, to, uh, get rid of their debt? Wasn't that talked about in the last presidential election? Whatever happened to people talking about that? Anyway, because that was one of my interests too, was to see my kids where some of my kids are quite buried in debt just due to their education. Why do you think that the social issues are something that you look at from that broad perspective? Because of of working with people my whole life. When you work with children, you work with their families. We taught, I know, at uh, in Hillsborough, of course, we had lots of refugee families that came through, especially early on. In the, I started teaching in 75, and by the time I was in Hillsborough, it was probably around 1980 or so, we had already started getting Vietnam, Cambodian, Laotian refugees coming through the schools. And, you know, if that situation existed today, they wouldn't even be allowed in the country. And when I stop and think about the families that have touched my heart and I've touched their lives as their teacher, I mean, I've been to their weddings and, you know, I come across them, you know, well, what are you doing today? And they've got college degrees and they're married and they've got kids and, you know, all of that. I think that toward the end of my career, working a lot more with Hispanic families and when, you know, a lot of the families were rounded up, immigration rounded up a lot of the parents and, you know, a dad would be sent back to Mexico and the mom and the kids would be left in Hillsborough and, they would have to make decisions on are they going to go back to Mexico to keep their family together and the decisions were made. So I would find out the next 
school year that the kids and the mom decided to stay because the kids were American citizens and because they were born here. And it was more important for the parents to see them through their education. So I guess what I'm saying is that people who are immigrants to our country or they are people of a different race that haven't, you know, had the advantage of white privilege. I just feel like, I feel like we need to empower them to build their lives up. And I, I hesitate using the term American dream because I really feel like American dream is a very white idea where I think that people in general dream about security for their children and their children's children. So many people come here looking for a better life, whether it's from Southeast Asia or Mexico and Guatemala or wherever, or the Middle East. They come here looking for something better because their countries are war-torn or their countries are poverty-stricken. And they believe that they can start new here and make something of themselves. And there, I, I haven't met very many that weren't incredibly hardworking people. So, yeah, that's why I would be in favor of social programs. I will always be in favor of that. But that all stems from how I spent 32 years of my life. What are some of the specific programs that you feel that Democrats have helped to improve social service-wise that maybe Republicans did not? (laughs) Affirmative action. You know, affirmative action was a program that, you know, when I was a struggling student and a young person out looking for a job, people would get into conversations with me about affirmative action and saying that, oh, yeah, they got the job because they were a person of color. Actually, they would just say because they're black. And But now we would see a person of color because it's not just black, it's all kinds of people. And, you know, sometimes I would get that little, and this was way back when I was really young, that little chip on my shoulder like, that's not fair. We should all be judged on our um, um, what we can do and what we can't do instead of the color of our skin. But I think that if you really look at racism in this country, unless people have gone through some level of training, they aren't able to see past the color of a person's skin. And so a program like Affirmative Action, although they probably should make some changes to it, I don't know. I think those kinds of programs that give people of color a chance to get a promotion or get a job with equal pay or I don't know. It's, it was mostly around jobs back when affirmative action was in place. That's what it governed. I don't think it's a bad idea because it forces the white people who are doing the hiring to, I think the intent was to look more at employing more people of color. And I think that it ended up just hiring people of color instead of looking at training them to be able to do what you wanted them to do. So now, if we had an affirmative action program, it would look very different because, Jesus, this would take me forever to weed through in my own head. I mean, I would would really need time to sit down and really think about that because I, I would have to review purposes. I know what the prime purpose of affirmative action was, but I don't know all of the little idiosyncrasies of it. 
And I know it would look different today, but I couldn't tell you how. But I do think that we in this country have to keep trying to overcome race, the racial barriers. I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't. I do think that when you have social programs that help people in need, you are going to reach more people of color than you're going to reach white. Yeah, that's a common perspective, I think. So one person asked multiple parts to it. So let me know if you don't follow. The question was, where does fiscal responsibility fit into your political ideology? Is balancing our federal budget or even trying to reduce our national debt important? And if so, how would you balance what are traditionally seen as liberal policies of publicly funded welfare programs with attempting to balance the budget? Well, I don't know. What's more expensive, a welfare program or the military? I mean, this is, this is the bottom line. We are so far in debt right now that I don't think Republicans or Democrats are ever going to get us out of it. Yes, I think we need to reduce the national debt, but we have been sending money out of our country for a good long time now to support other nations and their issues. And that's, that's kind of where I, I lean a little bit more toward the Republican point of view because I really am not totally opposed to pulling back from, I know that you're asking more about welfare programs within our country, but you have to have a broader perspective. I mean, over time, a whole lot of American money has gone overseas. I am in favor of pulling back and concentrating more on our own country and the needs of our country. But at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean doing away with social service programs. Now, that question used the word welfare program in it. Social support type programs are not all welfare. It's not all, gee, poor me, write me a check. I'm more in favor of programs that enable people to help themselves not to allow people to sit at home on their bottoms when they're perfectly capable of working. But then you look at programs like, you know, and I don't even know if this falls under the same question, but Medicare and Medicaid, well, shoot, I'm going to be Medicare age next year. I mean, I really don't want Medicare to go away at this point. But Medicaid is is a program that I really think if if they take money out of Medicaid, it's mind staggering how many people, old people, disabled people will be left with with no way to get the help that they need. Medically speaking, that would be a crime. I mean, I don't I would have to know what the answers to those questions would be like, what are you going to do with all of these people? who have a true need before I could ever be in favor of our government doing away with those programs. And I guess that includes the welfare program, too, because I think that there are ways that 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 welfare could be improved so that we're just not, you know, passing out money to everybody on earth. My daughter used to talk about, you know, people from other countries coming into the hospital and having their 12th child and never having to pay for any of their pregnancies or deliveries, and that's a little bit mind-boggling. But I've never, you know, done the research to find out how could that possibly be happening. So I don't doubt that it does because 
my daughter's pretty astute and she wouldn't have made a statement like that unless it was true. After hearing this question again, Lila pointed out something I think we all need to consider. If we are asking questions to try to understand others, sometimes our own word choice can influence the outcome. She pointed out this was a very loaded question, that because the phrasing came across as someone with a lot of knowledge on the subject, or she offers this other theory. The person who's just asking a question to intimidate, which a lot of, by the way, Republicans tend to do toward Democrats. Because, of course, it has to be uh, me against you kind of thing. And, oh, my God, we can't possibly operate in the gray area. And that that's kind of what's happened to our country right now is we're so incredibly polarized. We've got a line straight down the middle. And God forbid that anybody should exist in the middle. And that's for a lot of things I exist in the middle. I I don't, you know. Sure, I think it's a crime that we have trillions of dollars of, of federal debt, but that debt wasn't created by the Democrats. It was created by decades and decades of money going a lot of other places than just to American citizens. Do you follow me on that? I mean, I would have to have time to do deep research into our debt before I could even possibly give an intelligent answer to that question. So you've mentioned a couple of times the divides in our country right now, and you also mentioned having family that are yeah. on both sides of issues. What would your thoughts be on how to remedy those deep divides, or how do you work within that within your family? The big thing, and, and this is an ex well, it's kind of family, kind of extended family, but you know where people will vote for somebody like Donald Trump just because they are pro-life. And that's where I'm just going, you have got to freaking be kidding me. You put this man who on a daily basis exhibits himself as, I don't want to be mean, as a person who is in way over his head, who doesn't comprehend the ins and outs of government as it exists today who isn't able to communicate well off the cuff, and he needs to be able to be familiar with all of the issues so that he can speak off the cuff. He can't do it in any way, shape, or form. So these people put this man in office because they're pro-life, because he's a Republican, and the Republicans are pro-life, not pro-choice. And this is the part why I spent so much time on the whole abortion issue early on. It drives me crazy that... Because this is in my family. This is the big issue in my family and extended family. And it's like, I'm just going, you know, sometimes you just have to set that aside and vote for the better person instead of the party. I want to jump back now. You had mentioned also in your answer to the previous question, something about money going into wars and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. someone had asked. The military. Yeah, someone had asked, given that we had a liberal president who didn't end the occupation in Iraq and Afghanistan and a liberal presidential candidate that did not appear to have plans to end our occupation in the region, what do you feel is a liberal position on how the United States should be policing or intervening in other countries? We have a conservative president now that isn't bringing it to an end. It doesn't have anything to do with whether you're whether you're Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative, the situation that we are in 
in Afghanistan and, you know, the rest of the Middle East did not start in Obama's time. It started in Bush's, in his father's time. That's where it all began. Those were Republican presidents. Obama inherited the mess. Hillary Clinton, as his Secretary of State, I felt was better able to do her job than almost anybody else she put in that position, simply because she has the depth of knowledge to deal with it. I'm not saying she didn't make mistakes. I'm not saying Obama didn't make mistakes. But Obama had his hands tied. He was a Democratic president with a Republican House, is that right? Or Republican Senate? He was surrounded by the Republicans, yes. Yeah. So I know that no matter what he may have wanted to do, he could never have gotten it done. Because for years and years now, our government, there we go, they're polarized. They're, they're sitting on opposite sides of the fence. And it's not about the good of our country anymore. It's about the good of their parties. I'm not entirely sure that while Barack Obama was in office, that there was an appropriate time to pull us out of the Middle East. Because unless, and I mean, look at how fast things happen over there. I mean, we've, we've been rolling from one terrorist group to another, taking charge and moving. I mean, oh my God, look at what's happened to Iraq. I don't think that by pulling our presence out of the, out of the Middle East is going to help it become stable. And I think that since we've been there, as long as we've been there, expected that the Democrat would clean it all up. And he didn't do it. Surprise, surprise. He couldn't get a lot done with with the government operating the way that it was and still is. What would be your thoughts as to the current stagnation that we see in Congress? Well, my knee-jerk reaction is to fire them all and start from scratch. But unfortunately, one of the side effects of this nightmare is that fewer and fewer people even want to serve in public office. You know, I just, I have a really, really horrible fear that the only thing that's going to pull this country and its parties together to work together is going to be another horrible war. And I started having that fear when Donald Trump started shooting his mouth off at North Korea. And the whole North Korean issue has been going on since the Korean War anyway. But I don't, I, you know, I don't know what the answer to all of that is. I mean, you have, it feels like nobody remembers how to compromise. And we've been in this situation in history in the American government in the past. And compromise, you know, there there has to be a leader that comes along that is charismatic enough to inspire both parties to want to compromise. That's what's needed. Who that person is, I have no idea. I can tell you right now, it's not Donald Trump. Or at least if it was Donald Trump, it would surprise the daylights out of me and I would eat my words, you know, or eat crow or whatever it's called. But right now, we don't have that kind of leadership anywhere. You mentioned the need to compromise. What are some of the stances that you feel like you hold that you would be willing to to compromise sort of personally on if you were in that position to try to accomplish some other things? Not, it's not going to be in healthcare because that's, that's proved itself unsolvable, at least for the time being. 
tax reform was the latest thing that came up that people are saying, oh, yeah, the middle class is really going to, we're really going to save money. We're not. It's not going to happen. You know, I just don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. I just, I would have to have, I would have to be talking specifically about an issue and have the key points in front of me to be able to say, okay, I could give on this and and stand strong on this. You know what I mean? It's just off the top of my head, I can't, I can't do it. I think you make a great point there. These issues are hard, complex, nuanced, and the decisions politicians make every day of where to draw the lines are probably a challenge for them too, though that doesn't mean they can choose to do nothing. In the last election, there seemed to be a lot of voters who voted for our current president because they felt that they had been ignored or disenfranchised. Some of them were folks who had lost jobs to work being shipped overseas or things like that. What, from, I guess, your liberal perspective, can be done to work with, I guess, that issue? I know that the recovery from the recession, the economic down, the big economic downturn eight or nine years ago, I don't think we recovered well or quickly from that. But saying that, that the people who voted for the Republican candidate were disenfranchised, I think that that's a big excuse. I guess I don't believe that, that they were looking toward Donald Trump to give them a better life or a better chance at a better life, as far as getting another job or getting a bit better pay or or whatever they thought he was going to get for them. Because if you listened to his campaigns, which I did because I'd had a surgery and I was stuck in bed that September or October, many of the campaign things that came out of his mouth were outright lies. And yet people just believed him. And when you stop and looked at how he spoke to the public on the campaign trail, how he's still speaking to the public as president of, of the United States. It's being run like, like his reality TV show. And people, I think it caught up in, in the excitement of that or the what's going to happen next. And, and, you know, that whole thing. I just don't know that they're so disenfranchised. I think that they're just saying, well, this didn't work the last eight years. Let's try something different. But I don't think that commonplace, regular American citizens think any deeper about this than I do. And I honestly think that this last presidential election was something that we've never seen before. And, you know, they can say they felt disenfranchised. They can say, well, you know, a lot of these people are out of work and they can't get a new job. And so what's Trump's answer to it? Oh, yeah, let's open up all the coal mines again and pollute our country. You know, let's give me a break. Let's let's uh, legalize fracking and and move the oil pipelines over the top of our country and let them leak all over the place. You know, where at least the last Democratic president and, and his cohorts were talking about looking at alternative energies. And you know what I'm saying? It's like, um, gee, you can't get a job. 
As a coal miner, let's get re-educated and do something different. But, you know, that's kind of an easy answer. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't even sound fair coming out of my mouth. I don't know. I This is really hard for me because this is all done on a verbal basis. And you're talking to somebody who's not an expert, who is just a regular, ordinary person. You know, and, and I think I... I you know, I don't understand things the way, like, say, my niece understands things. She, even long before law school, she was so well-read about everything political going on. She understands it on, on a much deeper level than I do. And so for me to even be voicing opinions about this, I'm just going, I don't know. Yeah. To try to understand that we are just normal people and don't necessarily have all the answers, but we just try to make the best decisions we can with the information we have. Well, there you go. But the problem is, is that you have a country of billions of people where the majority of us don't get it. We don't have a good understanding. And we are, we've been incredibly victimized by lying politicians. They, I mean, even at the tiniest little uh, political races close to home, people are, they're blowing things out of proportion. They're lying about each other to the point where you don't know what the truth is. And I think that happens more in our presidential races than at any other time. I don't think that even people who think that they are they are voting with an informed vote, it just depends on where they got their information. And until, I don't know, and I, I think that that was a bigger issue this last time, you know, with all the disinformation that was flying over Facebook all the time. And it's still out there. I mean, I still have my conservative friends posting these these things with Barack Obama's picture on it. And I commented, he's not even president anymore. Give it a rest. And, you know, because there are people that just don't even want to move on. They just, and then when you really open the article up, it's only used to sucker people into their stupid articles to read them. And it's just a bunch of nonsense and conspiracy theories. Well, people are reading that garbage and maybe some of it did come from Russia. I I wouldn't be surprised. But they're reading it and they're taking it as gospel. So all those lessons that we did with kids in school on what was it called back in the day? You know where you read, you're being a critical reader, where you're reading and you're asking yourself questions as you read, like, does this hold water? Is this accurate anymore if you if you repost something on Facebook, you want to make sure that it's actually true before you repost it. Most people don't do that. There's so much. It's just, it's called disinformation. And there's so much of it out there that I think that the commonplace person like me or anybody else, we do the best we can to sort through and filter through the garbage, trying to find the truth. The only thing that we have to base it on, base our decisions on, are, are our own tiny little lives and what we care about. I care a lot about humankind and my fellow man, no matter the color of their skin or their station in life. 
I will vote for any kind of program that will help other citizens get to a better place before I would ever vote to send them back to their country of origin with no real reason. And I know that that's kind of probably mixing a couple of issues here, but it just kind of describes really well how I feel. I I don't like what they're doing with certain portions of the Im- new immigration policies. I agree that with with the president of the United States that we need to be very very careful who we let into this country. And there needs to be a vetting process in place. And in light of the recent, you know, the New York thing that happened a couple of days ago where the guy rented the truck and plowed everybody down. And he was, what was that called, chain immigration or family immigration or something where one person came over and brought over another person who brought over another person who brought over another person. And this person is radicalized and kills American citizens. I don't think that closing our borders is the answer. I think that this day and age, with all of the information the government has, governments, plural, have on people, that there's got to be a better way and a more efficient way of vetting people to come into our country without allowing people to come in that are going to do us harm. I think one of the goals of the podcast is to demonstrate that we are all just human trying to do the best we can. What are the worries that keep you up at night? Politically, uh, North Korea. North Korea and the fact that we have a president who, you know, he he shoots his mouth off and he's dealing with another world leader who is probably just as crazy as he is or just as nuts. We have completely different ideologies. We have different histories. We truly have different economies in that look at the size of our country compared to North Korea. I know that President Trump has put his generals in a position where they can make decisions, but it's our president who has the ability to launch a nuclear war. And that really concerns me. And that is, of all the things that will keep me up at night, because he will either provoke the North Korean leader into launching an attack on us. And, you know, being on the West Coast, I'm more concerned with that than people might be on the East Coast because they're not the ones that are going to get hit. We are. Or Guam or, you know, one of our other territories that's between here and there. I'm concerned that he will provoke him. And I'm also concerned that that because Donald Trump has an ego the size of roughly the entire Midwest, that maybe he thinks that having the power to launch a nuclear war or to threaten to launch nuclear war on a small country is what his ego is demanding that he does. I don't know. No, is that it's very unstable. And it's extremely worrisome, and there's not a thing any of us can do about it. And that's a big concern. We're sitting ducks. We're sitting ducks, and our well-being is, I mean, seriously, all he has to do is push a freaking button or just say, do it, and it's all over, and there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, you can't say to the people, you know, that voted for him, well, this is your responsibility. You put him in office. 
this is why I wanted, you know, yeah, Hillary Clinton, you know, I'm sure that there were things that she did wrong and the whole crooked Hillary bit, but she at least had the ability to negotiate. And she has a deep understanding of the political system and a deep understanding of our relationships with countries of the world. And I don't think Donald Trump has any of that. And it makes us even more vulnerable. Oh, good. What gives you hope that you see? When I look just at my immediate family, where all of my kids are educated, they all own homes. They are all settled down and starting their families or almost starting their families. I look at my husband and I who come from families where the parents were not educated, that were both his dad and my dad were self-educated engineers, and we had mothers who stayed at home, so there was never a lot of money, but we both became college educated and raised our kids to be educated. And we didn't care if they worked in their field or not. We just wanted them to have a college degree because that way at least they'd have something to fall back on if they chose to work in their, in their field where most of them are working in their field. But, but when I look at our family and the decisions that we've made over the years, I don't believe that we're atypical. I think that we're very typical. I look at each one of my siblings. I still have five siblings alive. And each one of my siblings, a few of them went to college, few did not. But they are all breadwinners. They all own homes. They have all educated their children in one way or another. Their children are all employed. Even when they get laid off, they go out and find another job. They all support their families and are involved in their children's lives. So, again, I don't think we're atypical. I think we're typical. And if you look at how those people, whether it's Mike's family or my family or your family or, you know, my best friend's family, who, again, is doing really, really well, I I just don't, I have to wonder where all of the, populations are where they're not doing as well. I mean, like, uh, you know, like if you own a house in Ohio, you can't sell it for hardly anything. So I'm assuming that the economy in Ohio is probably not all that great. And I just heard that from my best friend. So I'm sure that there are other places outside my own little world that are struggling. And I think maybe it, those are the places that I'm more interested in even finding out about. Where, you know, in Oregon, I don't think that we're struggling economically anymore. Don't we have a really low unemployment rate? And across the country, we have a really low unemployment rate. So, you know, and this didn't just magically happen since the Republicans got in office. I just, if my family is typical, and my best friend's family is typical, then I would say that as a country, we're doing okay. That things are not as dire as a lot of times they get painted. But I don't really know because I'm just not as informed as I probably should be. So the last question that I have is the same question I end every podcast with, which is what are three things you wish we knew? 
I hope that people understand that I am one person and this is one person's outlook based on what's happened in my one life. Interestingly, if you sit back and examine what has happened in the history of your life that has brought you to the place you are right now, whether that's liberal or conservative, I would hope that you would know enough to know how you got there. You know, that's not a specifically liberal answer. I'm not looking to turn conservatives into liberals. I don't think that's my job. I just think I would hope that people would listen with an open mind to all of the issues that are up for discussion. For instance, you know, like on social programs, that as a liberal, I have certain opinions and a conservative has a different set of opinions. I would hope that we could listen to each other and maybe at least agree to disagree or to agree that each has a good point. Interestingly, I think that's what Congress should be doing. (laughs) And I hope that somebody that you talk to somewhere along the line has an answer to that question about how to make our government work uh, with each other or the people that are our lawmakers. A huge thank you to Lila for being willing to engage and to all of you for being willing to listen. There were no doubt things in this podcast which challenged you or conflicted with your truth. I encourage you to sit with that discomfort. Don't just dismiss it as, oh, another liberal or, oh, one of them. Ask yourself why that is hard for you to hear and consider where that comes from. Continue the conversation. Engage with those around you each day and listen. I want to try something new with this show. I think for many, one year ago was a trigger moment for great fear. For others, it was a sign of great hope. Regardless of which experience you had, call us and tell us about it. Wish You Knew has a voicemail box that's very lonely. And so I'm hoping you can keep it company for a while. Sometimes by speaking our fears, it can help us to work through them. And by speaking our hopes, it helps us to orient our lives to make those dreams a reality. Call in and answer these two questions. What is your greatest fear right now in this moment? And what gives you the most hope? You can call in to 971-246-7606. Again, Call into 971-246-7606 and answer the two questions. What is your greatest fear and what gives you the most hope? If you want to share your first name, great. If you want to share what state you're from, that would be fantastic. So we know where people are calling from. If you just want to answer the questions, also fantastic. Wherever you are at, we are happy to hear from you. So again, 971-246-7606. What is your greatest fear? And what gives you the most hope? I look forward to hearing from you. Be sure to tune in next week to hear a perspective from the opposite side-ish. Until then, remember, people are people are people. Keep listening, keep learning, keep loving.